Our reading is in John's Gospel, chapter 4. Our sermon last week was on the first half of John's Gospel, and we're going to be considering uh, the first half of the fourth chapter of John's Gospel, rather, and we're going to be considering verse 31 to the end. John's Gospel, chapter 4, and verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say that there are yet four months, then comes harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed with them there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came to Cana in Galilee, where he had made water, made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So we asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, before we consider this passage, let's just bow our heads and we're going to ask for the Lord's help. God, our Father, as we come to your word, recall that you have said it is the spirit that gives life. The flesh is no help at all. So God, our Father, we are dependent upon your Holy Spirit to illumine your word to our hearts so that we might receive it. And so we ask the Spirit of God would empower every word in that the Lord Jesus Christ would be glorified, for we ask it in his worthy name. Amen. 
Well, our sermon tonight is called Fruit for Eternal Life, and I, I point that out because I think that some of you in your bulletin may have seen the title for Pastor David's sermon, but the, our sermon tonight is called Fruit for Eternal Life. And if you weren't here last Sunday and you didn't get the sermon on the first half of John 4, um, you'll have to go back and read that because it'll help you to get the context. But just in case you didn't, and for the purposes of this sermon, um, I want to give just a bit of a flyover of the fourth chapter of John's gospel. Is that all right? So what we have in John's gospel, really, or, or the fourth chapter of John's gospel, is really a journey. A journey that goes from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north. It's a journey that Jesus takes with his disciples from Judea to his hometown in Galilee. Now, that journey is broken into two stages. There's two legs of this journey. The first leg of the journey is from Judea to Samaria, and the second from Samaria to Galilee. And as we had last week, it was important that there was this stopover in Samaria because the Lord Jesus had a divine appointment with a solitary Samaritan woman there. And so they get to the place where this meeting is supposed to take place. This woman knows nothing about it, but after a day's journey, they're all hungry, and so the disciples go off to buy food, and the Lord waits for this woman, and she comes and encounters the Son of God at this well. And we find that the thirst that, it was really her thirst that drew her to that well, but that thirst was more than a physical thirst because she's drawn into a conversation with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus reveals that he knows some of the deepest, all of the deepest secrets of her heart. And ultimately, he reveals to her that he is the Messiah for whom she is waiting. And after this, she leaves her bucket and she runs to the city and she says, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And the disciples who had been gone to get food, they're oblivious to all of this. And they come and their stomachs are, are grumbling and, and they, and they want to eat. And they ask the Lord Jesus to eat as well. But the Lord is having a feast of his own. And he wants them to enter into that feast that he is having. And so he uses their grumbling stomachs as an object lesson to help them enter into this. And he explains to them the joy of doing the Father's will. That was his feast. And the eternal rewards for laboring in God's harvest. Well, this woman brings a great following to the Lord Jesus there at the well. And they ask him to stay for two days. And after that, he continues the second leg of the journey on to Galilee. It's actually Cana of Galilee, which this was the site of the first sign that Jesus did when he turned water into wine. And it turns out to be the site as well of the second sign that he does. And this second sign causes an anguished father 
and his whole family to recognize that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and to have faith in his name, just as the first sign had caused his disciples to believe in the name of Jesus. And it shouldn't surprise us that these two signs led to that conclusion because that is the whole purpose of the signs and the whole purpose of the gospel as we have in John 20 and verse 30. Now, Jesus did many signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Well, that's a summary of what we have in chapter 4. And I want us to consider this passage now under three headings. The source of satisfaction. The spirit versus sensationalism. And the second sign. The source of satisfaction, the spirit versus sensationalism, and the second sign. Let's start with the source of satisfaction. So, the Lord here reasons with the disciples from the seen to the unseen. From what they understood to what they did not understand. From an experience that they could enter into to something that they could not. They understood hunger. Most of us here understand hunger. And we know the satisfaction that comes from satisfying that hunger. Nobody needed a teacher, or they didn't need a teacher to explain that to them. A day's journey without food was a good teacher for that. But what they didn't know was the supreme satisfaction that flowed to the Son through uninterrupted communion with the Father and the joy of doing his will. And this is what the Lord wants for them. And that is precisely why the Lord had said at the start of the chapter that he needed to go through Samaria. Why did he need to go through Samaria? Because of his joy in doing the will of the Father, and the Father had prepared a woman and brought her to the point where she was ready to receive the word, and that was the delight of of the Lord's heart. You know, many of us tonight are chafing under these lockdown orders, and we're driven to distraction over the things that we can no longer do. And I'm, I'm right there with you. I am. But I want to ask you this. I was thinking about this this week. Did the things that have been taken away from us really satisfy? Or did they just distract us from a deeper longing from which we can no longer hide? Let me say that again. Did the things that have been taken from us really satisfy, or did they just distract us from a deeper longing from which we can no longer hide? What is the true source of our hunger? Where do we find true satisfaction? This is what it was for Jesus, to be completely engaged in doing the will of the Father. And so Jesus is helping them to reason from one hunger to that hunger. And it's a hunger that is satisfied only by doing the will of the Father. And then he uses another word picture. He tells them to lift up their eyes and to see the freshly planted fields. And I suppose suppose if there was fields there, it was four months till harvest, we're told, that maybe they had just, were starting to see the little um, sprouts springing up from the ground. Now, if a farmer saw that, 
that would give great hope and anticipation. Because a farmer would see those coming up and they would think ahead to the, to the day when those stalks would grow high and they, the heavy heads of, with kernels of, of wheat would be ready to be harvested, making the field look white. And the, and the farmer would have a degree of anticipation at the prospect of reaping that field and bringing that grain into the barn. Now we understand anticipation to receive the fruits of our labors, don't we? We understand what it's like to be looking forward to a package arriving from Amazon. We understand what it's like to be waiting for our grades to get posted. We understand the anticipation of our pay getting deposited into our accounts. We get that. It scratches an itch. It fulfills a hope. But it's very temporary. But then the Lord reasons from that to something else. The much greater joy in harvesting souls. And it's a harvest that they can participate in right now and enjoy the fruit. And as they lift up their eyes, as the Lord tells them to see those fields that aren't white with harvest because they're just little um, sprouts in the ground, they lift up their eyes and what did that? I think they might have seen a crowd of Samaritans gathering on the horizon, coming at the testimony of this woman to see this one who is the Christ. And it's a harvest in a field that they didn't even plant. What seeds had they planted in Samaria? None. Who did? Who planted the seeds that were now ready for harvest? Well, some might suggest perhaps the Old Testament prophets, although we're not aware that they did a lot of preaching in Samaria. Certainly the Spirit of God had started the work in her to bring her to a sense of conviction over her sin. And while the disciples had been away getting dinner, the Lord had certainly started that work. And now because of the testimony of this woman, a crowd is brought and the disciples who didn't plant any seeds get to be involved in the harvest. You know, sometimes we think it's all up to us when it comes to evangelism, don't, don't we? We think that we got to do everything from A to Z. We think that we need to plant, to cultivate, to harvest. But that just isn't so. God is working and in communion with him, he leads us to where he has already begun the work. Now, how do we unlock this for ourselves? What is the message for us here? This wasn't about an evangelistic technique. How did the Lord create this harvest? How did God create this harvest? Well, the Lord was in the right place at the right time because he submitted himself to God's providential plan. And then delighting in communion with the Father, the Son radiates a light that draws the woman into a conversation that reveals her deep thirst. So evangelism begins with enjoying the presence of the Lord. Evangelism begins with a delight in my own heart about the person and the work of Christ. And where that is lacking, nothing else is really going to cut it. 
It isn't about tactics and techniques. And when I submit myself to the providential hand of God and allow him to take me where he wants me to, that's where it starts. You know, I believe that the Lord Jesus was the happiest man that ever walked this earth. You know, I believe that with all my heart. Even though the prospect of the, of the cross must have loomed heavy before him, I believe he was the happiest man that ever walked this world because he lived in uninterrupted communion with the Father. And that's why I believe it says of him prophetically in Psalm 16, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. You know, from time to time, we come across the writings of people who, it seems, lived in the presence of God. And there is a quality about them that is just impossible to manufacture. And one such person was a 19th century English writer, a woman by the name of Elizabeth Charles. She was such a person, and she wrote this, and I quote, The personal love of Christ to you, felt, delighted in, returned, is actually, truly, simply, without exaggeration, the deepest joy and the deepest feeling that the heart of man or woman can know. It will absolutely satisfy your heart. It would satisfy your heart if it were his will that you should spend the rest of your life alone in a dungeon, close quote. You say, I want that. Well, it will cost you something if you want it. Are you, are you ready to get out of your bed in the morning? I mean it. To get out of your bed in the morning and to get your cup of coffee and your Bible, and steal away in the quiet hours of the morning and get in the presence of God and let the Spirit of God speak to you through the Word and bask in the presence of God. No, it won't happen all at once, but in time you will find that those moments are the most precious moments of your day. And you will find that from them there is a peace and a joy, and that they produce opportunities that you never felt were possible. Brothers and sisters, that is the source, that is the true source of satisfaction. Well, let's talk about our second point. We've talked about the source of satisfaction. Let's talk about the spirit versus sensationalism. So in verse 39 and 42, we see the Spirit working through the Word to produce the harvest. And so we read in 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Now, let me ask you, why would this woman's testimony, he told me all that I ever did, cause them to believe? Well, I don't know for sure, but I suspect that this woman's sordid past was not a topic that she liked to discuss. I suspect that that was a place you didn't go with this woman. She didn't want that out there, I'm sure. And then for her suddenly to announce to people that this man who knew, the, knew these dark secrets in her life and to not resent it showed that a deep work of repentance had taken place in her heart. And only God could have done that. You know, we read in, in John's Gospel, chapter 16 and 8, Jesus says to his disciples that when the Spirit comes, that he will, and I quote, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. 
The Spirit of God works through the preaching of the Word to convict people of their sin. And therefore, the preaching of the Word is not always comfortable. And we ought not to try to make it comfortable by avoiding the issues of sin in the need, to, in the need for repentance. For without repentance, there is no salvation. So the Spirit of God is a work of repentance. And it's a really beautiful thing when you see the growth, the work in the heart of this woman, and you can see the whole Trinity involved in it, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Son in communion with the Father is led to a divine appointment with this woman. The Spirit has already begun a work in her to bring her to conviction of her sin. And the Word produces repentance and saving faith. And then it grows. And a multitude of Samaritans come to him and desire that he stay, and he does. And afterwards, we see a deepening of their faith as they say to the woman in verse 42, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So we see that while her personal testimony leads them to Christ, their faith is established and grows in the presence of Christ. And I want to say this, never elevate your testimony, your stories, your experience above the word. For faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Never elevate your testimony or your stories or experiences above that. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood. It is a wonderful thing to be able to relate how God has worked in our lives to bring us to repentance and faith. And the Lord can use those things, but it is no substitute for the Word and for the Spirit. You know, the soft music and the dry ice and the sensationalism is not what saves. Sometimes we think we need to make it you know, really attractive to people because if they like it and if they feel drawn in and they feel emotional about it, then they're going to accept it. But it's the Word. It's the Spirit working through the, the Word. Well, after that two days in Samaria, Jesus and his disciples continue their journey northward to Galilee. And if we connect the first verse of John's Gospel, chapter 4, the first three verses, actually, with the 44th, Verse, and we sort of see that this interaction with the Samaritan woman as a parenthesis, you see something interesting. I'm going to do that right now. Now, when Jesus learned, this is verse 1, that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Verse 44, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Now, if you look at the, the, these verses in this way, you understand that Jesus was not seeking the limelight. He was actually trying to avoid it. He left the publicity in Judea and sought out the obscurity of his own hometown. The Lord was not seeking notoriety or large crowds, but rather those who truly hungered and thirsted after righteousness. You know, there's a great danger in being taken in by the temptation to be recognized and to be in demand. This is very appealing to our flesh, and it's even more insidious when we have the ability to convince ourselves that it is all for the glory of God. But here we see the Lord starts his ministry, as it were, at home. Sometimes home 
is the hardest place to minister. I think mothers understand this better than anyone. Often at home, we're taken for granted. Nobody is really in awe of us at home, are they? But we must learn to be faithful at home, for there we gain a foundation of faithfulness that the Lord can build upon. Well, that takes us to the 46th verse, and that's where we have this second story, this short story at the end of chapter 4 about this official whose son was ill. And we read, um, and at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill, and when the man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now that seems like a rather insensitive thing to say to a man who was grieving over the imminent death of his son. But first of all, I, I want us to notice that the you here is plural. In fact, the NIV translates it this way, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So Jesus is addressing two audiences here. He's addressing the man who asked the question, but he's also addressing the crowd. And who was in that crowd? It was made up of Galileans who had seen what he had done in Jerusalem. And remember what had happened in Jerusalem? They may have observed other signs. Not all the signs Jesus did are recorded in John's gospel. But also Jesus had cleansed the temple there. You recall that. Now the Galileans were known for their uprisings. And it's not hard to imagine that they were pleased that Jesus had stood up to the Pharisees there at Jerusalem. But the point is, whether it was the signs that they saw or whether it was his um, bold standing up to the Pharisees, they were not driven to follow him because they believed, but because they wanted to see something sensational. But Jesus had not come to entertain Jesus had not come to astonish people. He had not come to satisfy their insatiable desire for experiences and activism. He had come that they might believe and have life through his name. And so our Lord does not give in to the fickle crowd's desire for sensationalism. And I believe that in this statement, unless you people see signs, you will not believe he's exposing and rebuking their motive for following him. And I want to remind us, brothers and sisters, I want to remind us that it is not sensationalism that saves. It's the Spirit of God acting through the Word of God that brings people to repentance and to saving faith. A faith that needs to be constantly bolstered with experiences is a very weak faith. And if it's a true faith, it will be tested and weaned from dependence upon experience. And that takes us to our final point the second sign. So while Jesus' rebuke is directed at the crowd, the father of this dying son accepts the truth of Jesus' statement for him. He doesn't resist the rebuke. He simply restates his desperate plea from the depths of a breaking heart. And he says in verse 49, Sir, come down before my child dies. And in that plea, the Son of God discerns a faith, albeit weak, and that faith is both rewarded and tested. 
Our Lord graciously distinguishes between a false faith and a weak faith. He resists the one, but he rewards the other. But in his faithfulness, he works to strengthen that faith through testing. And so he says to the man, go, your son will live. Now, I got to believe that that would have been the hardest thing for this man to do. Here he had traveled what was probably 17 miles, this busy man, because his son is at the point of death. And the only hope for his son stands before him. And that hope tells him to turn around and to go home with no tangible evidences that his son was healed. That somehow Jesus' words are going to transmit over 17 miles and cure his incurable son. That would have been a tough thing to do. And in the next verse, we read that he meets uh, these servants of his that, that tell him that his son is recovering. And when he asks the time, they say, and notice this, they, they say to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And you know what I read in that? A very dark and desperate night that had preceded this. How do you suppose the father spent that night? See, he had to go through that night with no proof that what the Lord had promised would actually happen. I don't know. Maybe he lay there and thought to himself, what am I going to tell my wife when she says, why didn't you plead with him? Maybe he thought, what kind of a father wouldn't just insist that he come and not leave and pull him there to come and lay his hands on him? Maybe he thought, how can the words of a man somehow just transfer over all these miles Maybe he slept soundly. I don't know. Parents that have sat in an emergency ward in the wee hours of the night, desperately afraid that they may not see another day with their child, understand what this is like. Why does the Lord allow these things in our life? Why does he allow those dark and painful nights? And why does he allow the dark times that we are passing through now where all the things that we thought perhaps were unshakable are being shaken? Well, apart from this crisis, this busy, preoccupied official may never have turned from his busy life to make that 17-mile trip to the Lord. His faith would never have been tested and his unbelief would never have been stripped away. Do you think it's possible that God is testing our faith through this? How can we speak to others of a faith that shines so faintly beneath layers and layers of unbelief? Is it not possible that the Lord is using this lockdown to strip away the unbelief that our light might shine brightly in the gathering darkness and that we might bear fruit for eternity? Well, the test produced eternal fruit in the home of this father, for we read that we read, and he himself believed in all his household. The faith of the father impacted the whole family. And I want to say to fathers here tonight, the faith of the father will affect the whole family. Are you being faithful in your own home? Are you exercising faith because little eyes are watching? 
And what you do and the way you react to a crisis, the way we, we react to crisis and the way we react to difficulty says far more than what we say. The faith of the Father led the whole family to the Lord. Well, in conclusion, I'm not here to give you a pep talk. That's not my purpose tonight. I'm not here to give you platitudes about we're all in this miserable time together and we're going we're gonna to get through it all. But I am here to open the word of God that we through patience and comfort of the scripture might have hope. And I am here to call you back to the word. Are you losing your hope this morning, brothers and sisters? Are you drifting from the scriptures? Are you missing those times of quiet fellowship with the Lord? I'm calling you back. He is calling you back. Get up, get out of bed, and get on your knees and open the scripture and spend time daily in the presence of the Lord. It is the food that will sustain you, producing the faith that will enable you to gather fruit for eternal life. What is the one thing? I mean, there's usually a bunch of things, but what is the one thing tonight? Think about it. That one thing that you need to trust the Lord for tonight. Are you willing to lay it down and leave it here? Are you willing to really trust the Lord for that one thing tonight? And if you don't know tonight the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior, you know, I really don't know how you go on. I really don't know how you do it. He calls you today. He says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So come. Come as you are. Come in repentance. Come in faith. Come as this grieving father did. And no matter how weak your faith is, that faith will be rewarded. It won't be the end of your trials. In fact, it will bring you some new ones. But what it will be the end of is you having to bear them alone. For you will have the Spirit of God within you, a well of water springing up into everlasting life. You will have the Son of God, a friend who sticks closer than a brother, who intercedes for you daily and forever before the, 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 before the Father with his own blood. And he will bring you to the Father, who will be your Father, both for time and for eternity. I want that so much for you tonight. And for the rest of us, the Lord wants to remind us tonight that we are his and that he is ours, that he's not afraid of all of this, that he has things under control, but he wants us to trust him. And so he calls us to his table this morning to remind us that we belong to him. And so we're going to come to the, the Lord's table this morning now, and we're going to remember that, and as we do, we're going to come as brothers and sisters, missing the rest of our brothers and sisters that were here earlier today and will be coming later, but as brothers and sisters, we're going to come to the Lord's table and um, fulfill the Lord's dying request that we would remember him in his death. So let's come to the Lord's table.